Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll do a deep dive into the forgotten art of comforting, the things we can say and do for people who are grieving. Also on the show, a listener wants to know if it's normal to start the grieving process before an actual death has occurred. And I'll share my takeaways from a New York Times piece on a man who attended his own wake. Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who gives people the tools, space, and support to come back to life after loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone, because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. everybody and welcome to coming back episode three. I am so honored to have you here. Just a couple of announcements and cool happenings to talk about at the top of the show. Uh, First of all, if you're in Chicago where I am, I'll be doing candlelight restorative Reiki yoga with my Reiki master Tracy Ostrand this Friday, June 2nd. I did it once in May and now have been invited back uh, to co-Reiki with her. This is an hour and a half class that leads you through several uh, relaxing and opening yoga poses, all while receiving hands-on Reiki from Tracy and myself. Um, I won't be doing a lot of speaking at this event. It's a little bit more of a place to rest and recharge than it is to actually teach or talk about grief and loss. But I'll tell you that in the midst of my own grief and loss, Reiki as a focused energy and as a healing energy did wonders for me, especially in the early stages. And as a matter of fact, Tracy Ostrand, the woman I'll be co-Reiki-ing with, was my first Reiki experience. Um, So if you're interested in coming, it's from 7 o'clock to 8.30 p.m. in Evanston, and it's just $35 if you pre-register on her website. You can find the tickets at turnyourshineon.com slash events, or just by looking in the show notes, and I've included a link in there for you. If you'd like to find out more about what Reiki did for me on my own grief journey, you can jump over to shelbyforsythia.com slash about, and that's my bio of my entire grief story, but there's also a chunk in there about how I came to practicing Reiki and how it really improved my relationship with myself and my spirituality after experiencing grief. I also wanted to share with you a really sweet review that the podcast received this week. It says, coming back is a remedy for anyone who has experienced the grief that comes with loss. Shelby for Scythia not only articulates feelings that are difficult to put into words, but uses this gift to bring others together to do the same. You may have recently suffered a devastating loss, or perhaps you came back from something you didn't realize you could survive. Whoever you are, this podcast will strum those mellow heartstrings in a way that will soothe your soul. A must listen. Thank you so, so much, user named Bean Toes, which is so funny to me, uh, for this review. Thank you so much for writing it. If you'd like to leave a review of your own, uh, go to the podcast page on either Stitcher for Android devices or iTunes for Apple devices and click write a review. And this not only makes me smile on this end, and you might have the chance to get your review read at the top of the podcast, but it actually helps other people find the tools and the support and the stories they need. It helps them find this podcast as they make their way through life after loss. And thank you so, so much again for listening. I look forward to reading some of the reviews that you're going to write. All right, so let's shift gears and talk about a current event in the world of grief. 
So this week I read an in-depth piece that was done by the New York Times called At His Own Wake, Celebrating Life and the Gift of Death. It's about an Irish-Canadian man named John Shields, who under Canada's medical assistance and dying law passed last June, literally got to choose when and how he died. He had a rare incurable disease called amyloidosis that caused painful damage to the nerves in his arms and his legs. So John, his wife, and his doctor decided to make dying openly and without fear, and that's a quote from the article, they decided to make that his meaningful life legacy. And so once a date was decided for his death, John and his entire family orchestrated what they called a living wake, where friends and family and former colleagues could come gather and eat and sing and say goodbye. And food was catered in from John's favorite restaurants, jokes and toasts were made, blessings and tissues were passed around. And even John acknowledged that his death would never happen without some kind of sadness. The next day, he was lethally injected, surrounded by his family and a woman who conducted an end-of-life ceremony that was fitting of John's cosmic and religious and Irish leanings. After he died, his body was laid out in his garden at home for two days, constantly watched over by family and friends and a fire that never stopped burning. John told all of them, all of his friends, all of his family, all of his colleagues, that this was the way he wanted to die. So that's exactly what they did. It was very personal. It was very beautiful. And it had all been planned in advance. Now, where you stand on medically assisted death is up to you. And it's a very, very personal choice. But what this article brought up for me was the importance of talking about how we want to die before we actually die. One thing that John said in the article stuck with me. He said, what could be more meaningful than planning for the end of your life? Because how we leave this world is just as important, if not more important, than how we enter it. Our deaths are about taking a good look at the lives that we've lived, letting people know that we're grateful or that we're sorry, that we're proud, that we're satisfied. Dying, like the article states, is a gift that provides us with an opportunity to experience more of life's love if we take the time to prepare for it. Deciding how you want to die is about so much more than letting people know you want to die at home instead of in a hospital or whether or not you want to be kept alive artificially and for how long. And so many of us have watched our friends and our family die in ways that don't suit who they were to us. They don't honor the person who's having the experience of death. And in those moments of of death and dying, we're mentally scrambling around and we're asking ourselves, is this really how they wanted to go? I wish I could have done something more to personalize this. If only I knew what they wanted. When my mom was dying, she told us she didn't want to die before Christmas. So we actually moved Christmas in my house to two days earlier, when she could still remember and understand it. That was my own experience. This could be bringing someone's pets or part of their garden or children to them while they're dying in the hospital. It could be playing disco music at the funeral. It could be taking the trip that you know is your last to the beach to write your initials in the sand before they're washed away. And I know that this is harder with tragic or sudden deaths. It's extremely different for heart attacks or murder or suicide or car accidents. You don't have the luxury of time there. It's different with miscarriages and stillbirths and pet loss where the souls that we're losing can't speak to us and tell us how they want to be remembered. 
But as much as we can, and as soon as we can, and to the best of our ability, we need to tell the people important to us how we want to be honored and remembered at the end of our days. So when these things do happen, the bike crashes, the slip and falls, the slow declines due to cancer, the unexpected national tragedies, we have some idea of what our loved ones wanted. It's a question to bring up on a long road trip. How do you want to die? Or something to talk over when you're drawing out your will. Or if you're not ready to talk about it, but can see it in your mind or feel it in your spirit, write it down and put it somewhere where someone you love will know to find it should something happen to you. Knowing how you want to die doesn't just help the people around you honor and celebrate what you've brought to their lives. It also ensures that you have some choice and control and creativity and how you experience life's last gift death. So people can look at you and say, this is what they wanted. So how do you want to die? How do you want to be remembered? What's the last feeling that you want to be left with in this world? Something to ponder this week. Up next, I'll answer a listener question about grieving before a death. Is it normal? We had an anonymous listener write in this week with the following question. Hi, Shelby. I have this habit the past 10 years of burying loved ones before they're dead. When I say that, I mean those I know will die somewhat soon, like when my dad had Parkinson's disease and ended up in hospice due to pneumonia. My most recent encounter with this mentality involves my geriatric dog who has arthritis and a number of allergies. I guess my question is, is this normal? Does this happen frequently to other people? Is this good or bad? I know for me personally, it resulted in a temporary rift in the family when my dad died. They all grieved in quote-unquote appropriate present time, while I had been grieving for my dead father years before his passing. Thanks for any insight. Well, thank you, anonymous listener, for your question. I so appreciate you writing in. I want to start by saying that I am so sorry for the loss of your dad and for the impending loss of your dog. That's never easy. What you experienced with your dad and what you're currently experiencing with your elderly dog is something called anticipatory grief. And yes, it is absolutely 100% normal. We don't have to wait for people or pets or relationships to die before we start grieving them. In fact, anticipating grief is just another healthy way that our minds and our hearts process loss. We can practice anticipatory grief in a lot of situations. In most situations, anticipatory grief applies to a friend or a family member who's been diagnosed with a terminal illness. You can start grieving once the diagnosis is made, once they're moved into hospice, or once they've stopped remembering your name. It's not really about timelines so much with anticipatory grief. It's all about when you're starting to feel that you're losing the person you love. Sometimes that can happen weeks or months or even years before the person you love actually dies. You can also see anticipatory grief in the case of toxic or unhealthy relationships. Abusive parents, neglectful parents, dysfunctional parents, parents who just plain weren't there for us. Um, You can be grieving those relationships beginning in childhood as soon as you recognize your relationship with your parents or, or, or parent isn't loving 
healthy or whole. Uh, I know a couple of people who have grieved their parents since their teenage years when they made that realization, even though their parents are still very much alive. And just a disclaimer here, I'm using the role of parents as an example, but you can apply anticipatory grief to every type of relationship. There's another phrase I want to share with you that I picked up from a woman I met here in Chicago. Uh, She wrote a piece in 2010 in Caregiver Magazine about her husband who died from vascular dementia. He was a professor with five degrees, a highly intelligent and capable man before his dementia got worse. And she talked about crying going to see him even after a year and a half of him being in a nursing home. He didn't remember her visits or, or even if she visited multiple times on the same day. The title of her piece and the phrase I want to share with you is called The Atrophying of a Relationship. She described it as all of those small things that you lose leading up to a death that prompt you to grieve. And these can be things like the ability to pay bills together, the ability to drive, the ability to remember names and faces of loved ones. The list goes on and on, and it can be anything, big or small. Grieving before the death actually happens, watching our loved ones wear away, is a grief all its own. And she shared that with me. And it is very, very real and worth acknowledging. In your note, listener, you asked whether or not grieving before death was common. I'm very, very, very inclined to say yes. Just from the quick Google search that I did, I found that there's over 1 million people living with Parkinson's in the US. And while it's not fatal, uh, it does generally cause people to die earlier than the rest of the population. And it looks like at least 50,000 new cases are diagnosed each year. So grieving loss of coordination, stability, and ability before these people actually die, I imagine, is very common. And that's just for people with Parkinson's, which is what your dad had. This isn't even considering the anticipatory grief felt by the friends and family of people with dementia or Alzheimer's or cancer or diabetes or heart disease. Your experience is very common and and you're not alone. Most people just don't know what to call anticipatory grief when they're feeling it. They just know and they feel that they're losing something that they're not going to be able to get back. You also asked if experiencing anticipatory grief was good or bad. And I'll tell you, I really don't like to dichotomize grief. I think that normalizing it is one thing, and we all should. But marking anticipatory grief as good or bad just doesn't really sit right with me. Um, It sounds like your family labeled it pretty strongly as bad, though, and... I'm really sorry for that for you. Just because you grieved for your dad on a different time frame or in a different way than they did doesn't mean that how you grieved him was wrong or insensitive. It was just it was just different. People react differently to death. Some people grieve before death and some people grieve only after death has occurred and neither is better or worse than the other. What we do need from our family and friends, though, is their support for whenever we grieve. So I hope that one day you're able to talk to your family about your grief process at that time and that some understanding can come from that conversation. And I want to thank you so much again for writing in. I hope I was able to fully answer your question. If you've grieved before a death has occurred, tell us your story by leaving a voicemail for the show. 312 725-3043 or by emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com we would love to hear from you you can also ask your own question to be featured on the show again by leaving a voicemail at 312-725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com and you can find both of these contacts in the show notes
Up next, we'll do a deep dive into the things we can say and do to comfort people who are grieving, a skill we could all use. I wrote a blog post a little bit ago talking about not knowing what to say to people who are grieving. I stressed big time the importance of just saying a heartfelt I'm sorry to someone who has just lost something, whether that's a loved one, a pet, a job, or a home. It's called You Don't Have to Know What to Say, and you can read it over at shelbyforsythia.com. Click on blog. To start off this segment, I want to tell you over and over again that I'm sorry is enough. It is so enough. I'm sorry is enough. I'll tell you, in the midst of my own grief, at my mom's wake, when I didn't get my dream job after college, after my fiance and I broke off our engagement, I was most touched and heartened and felt less alone when people simply said, oh my God, I am so sorry. People think with grief that they have to be profound, or they have to help us see the bright side of things, or they have to make us feel better. But in the moment when we're hurting, that's not helpful. In fact, it's actually pretty isolating. I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories about friendships that no longer exist because somebody said something like, everything happens for a reason. It's all in God's plan or stay busy. It'll make you feel better. Grievers don't want to feel better. They probably will eventually. But what grievers want in the moment is to feel seen and heard and validated for everything that they're going through. So how do we do that? How do we help grievers know that we're seeing and hearing and validating them? I want to start by talking about immediate words and actions, things to say and to do when the news first comes to you that something has happened. Then I want to talk about follow-up words and actions. These are for the months and the years that follow a loss. And then I want to talk about lifetime words and actions. These are for living a life of listening and truly being there for people who are going to need you the most. I'll be pulling from two books for this segment. The first is called There is No Good Card for This, What to Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. And the second one is called The Art of Comforting. Both of these books are supremely helpful in learning how to comfort others through grief and loss. And I'll tell you what you're missing with the first book, um, There is No Good Card for This, is a ton of really true, really hilarious, and really beautiful doodles about coping. One of the authors is the creator of the famous empathy card. So there's a lot of drawings in this book. And what you're missing from the second book, The Art of Comforting, is a set of really insightful interviews from comforters and caregivers of all backgrounds, everyone from... Um, physical therapists that work with horses to hospital workers at the VA. So let's jump in. Someone you love just found out their dad died, or their mom has cancer, or their brother's dog died, or their grandfather just got admitted to the hospital, or their best friend just filed for divorce. What do you do? Let's jump to immediate words and actions. First, don't hesitate to reach out. Just reach out. Again, people seem to think that they have to be profound or even verbose with grief. There's this idea that we have that if we're not making somebody feel better, we've failed as a comforter. There is no good card for this says we have three blocks to not wanting to reach out. And they are one, saying the wrong thing, two, doing the wrong thing, and three, not having enough time or emotional bandwidth. But here's the thing, you don't have to know what to say. 
You don't have to know what to do. Just say, I'm so sorry, and then listen for what's next. The art of comforting emphasizes throughout the book that grievers don't feel worse about their grief when someone reaches out the wrong way. They feel worse when someone doesn't reach out at all. And there's this beautiful quote, and there is no good card for this, that says, We don't need anyone to impress us or skillfully talk us out of our pain. We mostly just need the kindness that compels anyone to try. So write a card, send a text, hop onto Facebook, and send them a message. Whatever your preferred communication method is, just let them know that you're sorry for what they're going through and that you're thinking of them. So the second thing that you can do immediately is to perform a small gesture. A lot of people narrow this down in grief to flowers or food or showing up at the hospital, but there are a ton of things that you can do for grieving people that are both kind and meaningful. For example, if you know they hate talking on the phone, how about helping them schedule some doctor's appointments for themselves or for a loved one? If you know they'll be out of town for a funeral, how about mowing their yard or bringing in their mail? If they're a coworker you don't know very well, can you leave a small gift at their cubicle, like a gift card or a mixtape for chemo trips or a new set of their favorite pens? One of the best experiences I had after my mom died was being taken aside by one of my favorite mentors. She opened up her office to me as a place to talk about anything or even take a nap if I wanted to. This is a beautiful opportunity to get creative and to use your gifts. What do you have to offer? Are you good at making art? Take the kids for a day and doing crafts together. Are you good at orchestrating people and events? Coordinate a meal train or a carpool schedule. Do you have a dog? Bring the dog over for a play date. Animals are so, so great and so helpful during hard times. Are you good at simply listening and showing up when you're needed? Go to a griever's desk or to their house with a snack and just check in. Are you good at social media? Offer to run their Caring Bridge page or other social pages posting updates about their loved one's condition. If your kind gesture involves something like entering their house, like taking care of pets, watering plants, moving furniture around, uh, be sure to ask them first if it's okay. Don't just show up. But otherwise, performing a small gesture is just another way to show the people we love that we care about what's going on in their lives. It's also a great way to remember and recognize your own unique talents and gifts. Just like all grief is expressed differently, all comforting is too. You've always got something to share. So the third thing that you want to do in the immediate aftermath of hearing the news about someone's loss is to express faith in their judgment. This was one of my all-time favorite suggestions from There Is No Good Card for this. When life hits the fan and grief blows everything up into a dozen little pieces, it's really easy for grievers to feel like everything is falling apart and there's absolutely no way they can stitch their lives back together and there's no decision that they can make right now that would be a good one. So expressing faith in their judgment by saying, I know this is really hard for you and your family, but I have faith in your ability to make the best choice for you or I trust you to do the right thing, shows them that you believe that they are still capable and strong without using really crappy platitudes like chin up and you have to be strong for your family or don't cry, you'll figure it out. Grief really messes with our heads and can convince us that we can't do anything right. So knowing that there are people out there who not only have faith in grievers and us, but recognize that they're still functioning, decision-making, not broken people is really vital and comforting. So next I want to move on to the weeks and the months and the years that follow loss. And here's a couple of ways that you can show somebody who's grieving that you care. The first one is to ask, how are you today? 
This is actually something that came up in Sheryl Sandberg's book, Option B, which I talked about on the last episode. It's reiterated and there is no good card for this. Grievers are really, really, really sensitive to the fact that their emotions are changing minute by minute. So asking how are you is like asking them to pick one word for the crap load of crazy emotions that they're feeling. And to make it worse, how are you is such a societal pleasantry. It doesn't seem like you as the person who's asking really cares about their situation at all. So instead ask, how are you today? And let them provide as many details as they're comfortable with. It's more about curiosity and caring than it is about prying or being nice according to society standards. The next thing you can do in the weeks and the months and the years that follow loss is to listen, 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 listen. The art of comforting is really big on being present and listening. So whether you're taking a walk in the woods, hanging out at your weekly ice cream parlor date, or chatting long distance on the phone, being there for them, Being there for someone who is grieving is 90% listening. Unless you're explicitly asked for advice or suggestions, do not give them. You're free to validate them. That sounds so hard. I'm so sorry. I would be confused and disoriented too. You're allowed to tell your own stories. Oh, that reminds me of the time that XYZ happened. And you're allowed 100% to reminisce with them. Remember the time that we all went to that place and saw that thing? But don't tell grievers how to live their lives. Supporting a griever is all about acknowledging that the experience that they're having is theirs to have, and they'll ask for your advice and input when they want it. One of the worst things that a griever can hear is, you should. You should read this book. You should go to therapy. You should take a vacation. Don't should on your friends. That's no fun. Listen instead. The third thing that you can do in the weeks and the months and the years that follow grief is to remember anniversaries and holidays and tough times. Through the years, it's really easy for grievers to feel forgotten. Society has all these artificial timelines for getting over, I'm using air quotes, getting over grief. So like widows get a year before they can date or marry. The amount of time it takes to get over a death is the same number of months for the years that you knew them. After six months, you shouldn't be crying about it anymore. That's nuts. All of it. All of it is nuts. Grievers may not be in the acute, immediate aftermath of their loss, but holidays and anniversaries and special days are still at the top of their minds when they roll around. I personally still get tense around the 26th of every month. Thanksgiving and Christmas are still hard. My mom's birthday is hard. As morbid as it sounds, put your friend's important dates in your phone or your planner. Listen for them date-dropping times when they know they're going to be in a grieving headspace. Expect that and prepare for that. You could send a text the morning of that just lets them know you're thinking about them. You could take the day off work and spend a little extra time with them. Or you could ask them how they're planning on spending their day and simply support that with your affirmation and validation. Know that all people who have lost something will continue to grieve. Time can support healing in its own way but it absolutely does not make grief disappear. So let's move on to lifetime words and actions. In the realm of lifetime words and actions you can use to show people you care, try these. The first thing is to know what comforts you. And this is actually a lifelong project that I'm still adding to myself. Uh, Keep a list in your wallet or phone. 
What comforts you? What brings you joy when you're down? Some people will call this self-care or self-compassion, but starting to notice and become aware of what brings you comfort in tough times can help you more easily support those who are grieving. You'll think it's less crazy when a grieving person wants to go window shopping, or maybe you'll surprisingly find shared comfort in visiting your neighborhood's dog park. I challenge you to make a list right now of the things that comfort you and then keep adding to it as you keep living your life. I'll tell you um, in my own life, in my own phone, uh, I have a note called Shelby's favorite I am sad movies. And top of the list, I'll admit to you, is Last Holiday with Queen Latifah and School of Rock with Jack Black is a very, very, very close second. The second thing that you can do across your lifetime to support people who are grieving is to practice mindful listening. This is something that you can do in any situation, not just when somebody is talking about their grief. You can mindfully listen to your boss or your kids or your roommate. You can mindfully listen to the radio, to nature, to traffic. The Grief Recovery Method Handbook, which I didn't mention at the top of this segment, calls mindful listening being a big heart with ears. And I just love this visual because it's present, it's available, it's undistracted, it's non judgmental, it's confidential, it's safe. This Mindful listening is a gift and a skill that you can hone your entire life. And then when the worst things do happen, you've got your mindful listening skills to lean on when your loved ones need to lean on you. The third thing that you can do for a lifetime of supporting grievers is to work through and work on your own grief story. So just like knowing what comforts you, Working through your grief story is an exercise in that muscle of self-compassion, whether it's through books, through therapy, through groups, or simply just listening to this podcast, noticing your feelings about the things that you've lost and validating them as normal and human works wonders when it comes to listening to the pain of others. Just like it's important in yoga to recognize the light in me sees the light in you, it's also important as a human to be able to say, the pain in me sees the pain in you. Knowing your own suffering and grief brings you closer to the suffering and grief of others, which, according to There Is No Good Card for This and The Art of Comforting, bring you closer to people in the connected moments that really matter in life. One of the weird, innate gifts of grief, and what so many people have discovered in coming back, is that what matters in our pain is not finding the books and the websites and the phrases that help us, but in realizing through the support and through the love of other people that we are not alone on our journey. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. A big old thank you to all of you out there writing reviews for the podcast and sharing it with your friends. This is such a piece of heart work for me, and I just love hearing from all of you out there. Thank you also to Addie Goldstein for composing our theme music. Remember this week that it's not your job to make grievers feel better, but it is definitely within your power to be there for them, to perform small but important acts of kindness, and let them know that you support them. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail at 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line podcast. As always, it 
was beautiful sharing this space and time with you. I see you, I'm proud of you and the work you're doing, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.